0: Is anyone here yet?
1: Hey, Eve. It's Barry from New York.
0: Hey. Is Rick here? Hey, guys. Hey, Rick. Cool.
1: So, um, anyone have anything they want to talk about today? Oh, oh, oh
2: pick me. Rick, what's up? What's up? Okay. <laughs> um, so, this is... Okay, it's kind of an old story, but I thought it, it had been really weighing on my heart. Uh, so, I recently came back uh, from a science conference, and it reminded me of uh, a science conference I went to a couple years ago that should remain unnamed. Where uh, there, was a, there was a session on making, and uh, I've been interested in making and how to bring it into my museum, um, but it really was basically uh, almost an hour and a half of one guy's diatribe against making in museums. Ouch. Yeah. What <laughs> so, was the deal? Well, basically, he just didn't see what connection making had to most of the business of science centers and natural history museums. And, in his mind making was mostly about arts and crafts and that was fun (laughs) but it was very different from the hard work of trying to inculcate sort of science learning and science ideas and science facts into various audiences and in his idea people were just doing it because it was this latest fad and they're just chasing around in a very unexamined way and in his mind there was no real evidence that making activities led to these deeper science engagements. Um, Now, I don't agree with that, but I do think that he raised some really challenging questions that I don't necessarily have all the answers to. Um, So yeah, I thought maybe we could spend some time uh, trying to figure it out because you guys are smart and we know a lot of other smart people. So uh, let's uh, talk to some people and find out what they think. What do you guys think? Let's Uh, do it. it. (laughs) Cool. Well, welcome to the show.
3: What does digital learning look like in a collections-based museum?
0: Find out now on Object Oriented,
4: the podcast.
1: Welcome back to the latest episode of Object Oriented. Uh, I'm Barry Joseph here at the American Museum of Natural History. In San Francisco,
2: we have... Hey, it's Rick Bang, and Even. I am the senior manager of digital learning at the California Academy of Sciences. And we've also got Eve.
0: And in I'm Chicago. Eve Gauss. Yeah, I am at the Field Museum in Chicago, Illinois, and I am the digital learning manager here.
1: In every episode of Object Oriented, we pick a topic that's interesting us about how digital learning is impacting museums, for us specifically, natural history museums, but also museums in general. And this episode, we're taking on the topic of making, maker spaces, the maker movement, and what they mean for museums. We thought for this episode, we'd actually bring in some guests to talk with us about the topic. We're going to be hearing from David Wells from the New York Hall of Science in Queens, New York, from... AJ Almagar most recently at the Lawrence Hall of Science in Berkeley but first we're going to start with Lisa Brahms at the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh. Lisa's going to help us start with the overall concept about essentially what is making. Lisa, welcome. Welcome to Object Oriented. Thank you. So please help us understand what is making in museums.
3: You know, there's always been, people have always made things in museums, and museums have always been places where made things are um, accessed and thought about and um, considered. Um, I think what's new about making in museums is that uh, the way in which making is taking shape, the way it's taking form, the way it's making us reconsider um, what learning is in museums, um, the, the role of the object and the history of the object perhaps, uh, and the way in which people have played a part in that, um, and the way in which technology has played a part in that, I think may be reconsidered the, where the, where the world is going, um, in the future with technology and people, I think be being reconsidered a little bit when it comes to making within the museum sphere, um. I think one of the, the big things that making is, in museums is, is helping us think a lot about is um, the role of process and the way, in which, um, the way in which the process and the visitor's experience um, is changed when you incorporate uh, the making process into the museum context as opposed to just the product. Um, I think that is really a shift that's happening, and all the dynamics around that—everything from the pieces and parts, the, the materials and tools, to the people who facilitate that process, and then the place—the place within your museum where that happens—with um, regard to other things within the museum.
2: Lisa, that's that's <laughs> super helpful for context. Um, could could you say a little bit more about for you? is there a bright line between like, what we used to think of as like arts and crafts at a museum and then something that's a a maker experience? Because I think for a lot of people, those two things are kind of conflated.
3: Yeah, Um, I think the intentionality is something for for me that um, where there's a real difference. I think uh, with my experience of making an art museum and a lot of museums that I've visited and a lot of people that I've talked to, like I said before, the um, the focus is less on the thing that's made. And when I think about arts and crafts in museums traditionally, um, it's more about make this thing. And everybody's thing is going to be somewhat similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and And that's what we're going for. But with making, we're really not going for that. We're looking for individuality. We're looking for intentionality. We're looking for um, choices along the way and moments of expression. Mm. Um, we're looking for thoughtful decisions, um, to be made along the way and making that process very visible. Um, making their, having lots of options, um, and materials available for, for learners to choose from and to, to really consider, um, con- consider the process rather than only the product.
1: Lisa, what's been driving this in recent years?
3: Um, you know, there's really been this movement of making that. Um, I think the a big driver has been the way in which um, educational policy has has really taken hold of the maker movement as an on ramp to STEM learning, so science, technology, engineering, and math, um, but of, and of course the arts. So, STEAM, if you wanna uh, use that uh, use that phrase, but. Um, but I really think that that has pushed uh, funding in this area, which, of course, then pushes uh, museums and other cultur- cultural institutions to, you know, for their ears to perk up and to, to take hold. But I think there's also been, um, among practitioners within museums, a real um, embracing of this. You know, it's it's a new way to think about what we do. Um, it's a new way to think hard about, about why we're doing it and the learning that's happening. It's a new way to spark relationships between um, the, the stuff of our museum, our visitors, and, and our work. Um, and so um, I think people have been energized by it. Um, but I think they're, they're, I, I think people have been energized by the shift, but I, I do think that, it, um, that the, the educational policy world and that funders have have also really um, have helped to drive that conversation.
1: You mentioned both the maker movement, and you also said the word relationships. So I'm wondering if uh, ma- the development of makerspaces and museums are allowing museums to work with new types of people and new types of organizations, and if so, what does that mean for museums?
3: Sure, yeah, I think that it's, it's happening. I think that um, that's one of the wonderful things that are happening. I think... Um, with museums that are really taking a hard look at uh, and really thinking critically about what making is and distinguishing it from traditional arts and crafts. um, Sometimes they're recognizing that not everyone has the expertise of a maker. And so that's forcing um, museums to look outside themselves and maybe partner with, um, you know, makers in their community or other museums, libraries, um, schools, uh, universities, you know, to find um, and, and to work with other people that have that expertise. I think it's really pushing incredible relationships where makers come into museums or museums go out into the community um, to, to discover and learn from one another using those, those social resources.
0: So I'm curious, I want to ask a question and and follow up on the uh, comment you made earlier about process versus product. And I think that for some museums that are maybe just entering into this space, that can be a challenging way to think about educational delivery. Um, And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about how do you make that transition from product to process oriented?
3: So the transition from a product-oriented perspective to a process-oriented perspective, Um, I think that there's a lot of ways to think about that. Um, You know, from a learning perspective, I think um, rather than think about the content that learners have to um, walk away with or the, the actual skill that learners have to walk away with, Instead, we, at the Children's Museum, we think a lot about the things that they're doing and potentially getting better at um, as they engage in maker activities. So um, we call them learning practices. So things like um, exploring and questioning or tinkering or um, seeking out social resources in different ways. So really tapping other people's expertise and recognizing that they themselves, you know, uh, are a learner. Um, other um, examples are um, developing fluency, but uh, for us that means actually becoming more comfortable with the tools and materials rather than necessarily mastering them. Um, so these are all these are examples of the kinds of things that we look for um, and really design to support within our space. Um, so uh, I think other things that can help with that process orientation is uh, really facilitators of this space make the tools and materials of making accessible in ways that are more exploratory rather than um, defining. And so, uh, you know, another way that it can be less process-oriented is to not have examples actually available, um, to instead just have tools and materials out um, for inspiration. So those are some, you know, on the practical side, it's pretty obvious maybe, but, um, but I think it, it's, it, it can be a hard transition. Um, and it, it takes, it takes work, um, to get from a process orientation to a, but it's really about engaging and having fun and playing with ideas and playing with the space.
1: So Lisa, what does it take to effectively run a makerspace inside of a museum?
3: Well, I think uh, I always say, um, you know, I think a lot of people when they're approaching and thinking about creating a space, they always think about what's the stuff that they need. You know, do they need the 3D printer? Do they need the, you know, nuts and bolts? But I think the most important um, ingredient to a great maker space for learning in a museum um, are the people that facilitate it. So the educators. Um, I I really think I always say staff over stuff Um, when you're thinking about budgeting for, um, for a maker space, um, and I think that's actually something that that is being found across the board in people who are creating these spaces. Um, then um, it's and it, it's surprising some people because I don't think museums are used to thinking about educators and actually people that bring a little bit of expertise in the different domains of making as well as informal informal learning as um, as really critical um, to to creating great um, experiences for visitors. Um, So, uh, you know, I I really think that's the most important thing. That's what we found, at least.
1: Lisa, thank you so much.
3: You're welcome.
0: To help us better understand the maker movement in science-oriented museums, we've asked David Wells, Director of Maker Programming at the New York Hall of Science, to join us. David, welcome to Object Oriented.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: David, so we're kind of wondering, why have a maker uh, making in science-oriented museums?
5: Um, Well, I think in general, science museums have been doing this really immersive, hands-on activities as, you know, their general nature. Uh, What I feel the maker movement brings to that as an experience is it expands kind of how we define science or... um, allows us to expand how we define science. So we talk, we can talk more about engineering and design and just general aspects of how you go from, you know, process to finished project um, or idea actually to process to finished project uh, in a more, I guess, multidisciplinary way. So, Of course, we focus a lot on science aspects and concepts, but we can also um, really delve into a lot of other concepts that are either related to and or intermeshed with science learning.
0: And I kind of just jumped us in there, but maybe it'd be better if we took a step back and kind of define what are we talking about when we say maker movement?
5: Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, the way that I explain the maker movement um, and because I get it a lot of times. Well, like. Why is this any different than DIY? Or how is this, you know, new? Um, and of course, I start off by saying it's not something new. Uh, what it is, um, I feel, is that it builds off of what DIY movements are. So typically, people kind of follow their interests and feel that. I don't need a professional to do this because I could do it myself. And people have been doing this in all sorts of disciplines and mediums for, you know, since we've been around as a species. (laughs) Um, The way the maker movement, I think, benefits the DIY movement and also, you know, uses it as a springboard that it, it collects and provides almost an overarching umbrella over the DIY movements. So now within DIY disciplines, you can interact with other disciplines. So for instance, you know, somebody that is a biohacker will cross paths with someone that's an urban gardener, and it's like, how do our processes relate to each other? And you really start finding out that whoa, we're we're kind of doing the same thing, just with different tools and different outcomes. Because um, it's really about the thinking process over the idea that I'm a you know ro- you know I make robots or you know I make furniture.
0: Yeah. When you were talking through, you mentioned kind of when we first started talking, you were mentioning about exploring like science and engineering and things like that. And I kind of wanted to bring up a a criticism that some folks have of sort of the maker movement, that it's essentially nothing but arts and crafts or like an upscale (laughs) arts and crafts type of of way. And so I'm kind of wondering, what's what's your response to that, particularly since we're centered in science institutions?
5: Yeah. Well, I mean, my first response to that is what 's wrong with arts and crafts <laughs> um, but my uh, my more legitimate response is that um, when we're dealing with science learning and such, at, at, at the base root of that, we're talking about the scientific process or what has been deemed the scientific process, which you know starts out with, you know, and there's obviously many different versions of it, but you're starting out with some sort of a challenge or a problem or something that you want to solve or figure out. Um, and then you go through the process of how you figure this out. And I think what is incredibly important is really understanding that as long as you're applying that process of trial and error, figuring things out, iteration, um, to be honest, for me, I don't need to differentiate between arts and crafts because I think it's a thinking process. And I think it's important to think in that way. So maybe I'm not applying this process to specific science content, but I'm applying it to challenges that I have. And if my challenge is I want to make, (laughs) you know, uh, some arts and craft thing, I still approach it with the same process. And when we... um, when we do programming, we don't necessarily, um, of course, we implement content in there I mean, without a doubt. But our, our primary responsibility, as far as I, I'm concerned, is to get these people thinking and to think about how they think.
0: Hmm. So you've talked about process, you know, quite a bit. And, and when we're using this term, and certainly in digital learning, we think a lot about the design process that we take our teens through. And I'm wondering, do you see sort of the parallels, do you see the maker movement as a way of almost being a springboard for students to kind of then get into the scientific process or start thinking in a more scientific way since those design processes and scientific processes sometimes have a fair bit of overlap?
5: Um, Yes, I think, I I mean, we are really concerned about entry points um, and how can we get people into either learning about science or into this kind of project-based learning, if you will, um, which is very similar. And I think there's just so many names out there for this type of approach that sometimes I think that might be more of the problem than the actual process of doing it. But I would say um, providing uh, teens or whoever is in the programs to, I guess, come at it from their Point of view, their perspective, where are they right now? And it just so happens that a lot of teens, and actually everyone, but specifically teens and younger, are really digitally focused. And everything, you know, especially when you get down to the, you know, digital natives that are starting to, you know, grow, that it's just this idea of how can we make this interesting to you as opposed to come to where we are. And I think that's where the digital platform is really beneficial. And plus there's, I mean, there's a wealth of things to learn and understand through using tools as well.
2: David, this is really exciting. And it's cool to hear the synergy between what you guys are doing at NYSI and the things that we're doing at our own institutions. Um, for those of us who are coming new to this space, maybe who might be at a small science center or might be at another science museum and not sure, like, do you have a, a kind of like a really cool case example or, or of a kid or, uh, you know, a project that for you, for you, like really solidified it. Like, yeah, we're definitely going in the right direction.
5: The things that I love uh, about my job is one, it's awesome, but to <laughs> um, really trying to creatively interpret things and develop a platform for other people, you know, whatever our visitors may be, wherever they come from, whatever age they are, to really help them to kind of, I guess attach their meaning to whatever this experience is, um, and one uh, we call it in our makerspace the "I can" mentality, and that goes into the idea of I, of course, I can do this physically or I can do this mentally. But there's a lot about permission in like embedded in there, so. When we present things, we like the kids to feel comfortable with giving themselves permission to experiment, explore, and express what they're thinking and what they're finding out. One of the, uh, a great illustration of that, um, one of the kids in my program, it was a musical instrument um, uh, workshop where we were making musical instruments, but I call it the experimental sound studio because I want it to be not necessarily driven by the structure we know musical instruments as, but how can we make sound that interests us and design it ourselves? So um, there's a whole process along with that, and I can get into that you know, later if you want. But in this specific story, the, um, uh, the kid was, actually his name was Derek, he was making um, his instrument, he was adding these strings to it. He created this really cool um, tightening system with nuts and uh, bolts and washers, and he was attaching the string to it. And the string had some elasticity to it. He was struggling on how to get the, the proper amount of tension he needed to make the sound. So, of course, you know, I, I saw him struggling. So I kind of you know, went in there and said, hey, you know, how's it going? What's going on? And he explained to me that he was having you know, trouble getting the tension on the string. So I offered another material. I said, hey, this string, you know, doesn't have as much elasticity to it. So you might be able to, uh, you know, use this instead. And he, I mean, without a pause he confidently was like, well, this one sounds better. And I was kind of like, hmm. And we have a way of testing, especially strings, but testing material sounds. Like if you were to take a string, wrap it around your finger and stick your finger in your ear, and you pluck that string, your head basically becomes an acoustic instrument. <laughs> nice. So you hear like, you hear the sound of this string as if it was playing as a speaker inside your head. So I did that. I grabbed the elastic one and I grabbed my string, and I said, Okay, you're right. You know, this does sound better. Um, So how can we make this work? And he had to redesign the bridge system and redesign um, the actual tightening system, raising the bridge. And he developed his own way to make enough tension with the string he, um, he wanted to use. Now, what really hit me hard about that or just like almost profoundly was, one, when I was 10, actually, when I'm 43, I, I still am like, okay, sure, I'll do that, you know. <laughs> and But when I was 10, if an adult, an instructor, or a teacher told me to do anything, I would have just followed suit, you know. Mm-hmm. And the fact that um, we're able to create a platform like this where a 10-year-old feels confident enough in his decisions to counter what i'm saying as a full-grown adult i just felt that that was a a really great illustration of what we do and why it's so rewarding
4: (laughs) nice yeah
0: all right well thank you so much david for spending time with us today and talking about making at museums
5: sure it was my pleasure Uh, anytime
2: all right well rounding out our uh our special guests. We have a good friend of mine, A.J. A.J., how do you say your last name?
6: Oh, it's A.J. Almaguer.
2: A.J. Almaguer, um, formerly of the Lawrence Hall of Science at UC Berkeley. A.J., we're so glad to have you on our show.
6: Oh, thank you for having me.
2: So we've been talking with uh, some um, other folks from different institutions about uh, how to integrate maker activities into um, into your spaces. And uh, we have talking a little bit abstractly, and I was like, oh, let's bring in AJ, because AJ has actually done a lot of this stuff on the ground with a lot of different kinds of youth. Um, so for those who don't know about um, Lawrence Hall and the Tech Hive, what are uh, some of the varieties of maker stuff that you guys have been doing?
6: So the Lawrence Hall Science has been doing maker activities for about five years, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, started, um, we started by opening this space for the visitors called the Ingenuity Lab. It's a drop-in space that um for visitors and every month we have a different engineering challenge um challenges um vary from like marble machines to uh like a lego lego dragster to build your own little like air rocket and you know try to aim it and fly it as far as you can Um, let's see we even have one about um like wastewater runoff and so you build a little like um you build a little town like a model town and then you like pour water over it and see like what gets run, what runs off and what like drips goes goes down through the soil
2: sounds really fun
6: yeah so that's some of the stuff that happens in the ingenuity lab but um about three years ago um the tech hive opened and the tech hive was a dedicated maker space um and that allowed us to um bring in teens and uh work with them and like dive deep with our teens to create new public programs and exhibits for our museum. And so uh, an example of some projects that resulted from the Tech Hive were our robot petting zoo. Uh, So that was a public program that we put on. And the cool thing about the robot petting zoo was that all the robots were made by teens uh, throughout this make-a-thon. We also built a Moloak exhibit for Maker Faire. A What? Um, (laughs) <laughs> molowhack? A molo-whack? So it's like, yeah, it's like Whack-A-Mole. It's but Whack-A-Mole, but... right? <laughs> yeah, so, but it's reversed. reverse? reverse? <laughs> <laughs> so we, built, we took that to Maker Faire, because we, we thought, like, what's the most ridiculous thing we could do uh, <laughs> that makes a lot of noise and kind of, like, puts on a big show for Maker Faire? And we brainstormed. Uh, and during this brainstorm, we like one of the ideas came out is a And we're like, nah, that can't work. That can't work. But then... <laughs> Looking into it more, I was like, "Oh, it actually could work." And it turns out, it totally worked. And uh well, what um, is
1: it? Guys, uh huh. How does it work? So, do, do moles so, whack does, you? What do you? Yeah. What so is
6: uh, the mole. So we built an animatronic mole that <laughs> whacks you on the head. And you, it doesn't whack you directly because what you do is you like so you're under you're underneath this platform, right? And you have the goal of the game is to pop out from under your hole, which is like you have to you have to push up the rock. You're under a rock, right? So you push up your rock, and then you have to like button smash this button that's right on top. It's kind of like like stealing food. It kind of looks like that because you're like your your head is poked out of this hole, and then like your hands are like pawing at this little button, so it looks like you're stealing food. Um, and then, but when your when your lid is open or when the rock is up, that allows that makes you susceptible to like losing points. So if the animatronic mole hits you on the head uh, while your rock is up, then you lose points. And then the anim- the, the funny thing is that the animatronic mole is connect is con- is controlled by someone in the audience. So we have just, we have this big red button that an audience member just like smashes and it controls the, the you know the whacking of the mole. <laughs> Um, uh, so that was a lot of fun. Um, and then the, the kicker for that one is that the, this button that you have to smash as you play Molowak is, is a button that you have to make yourself actually. So it's, it's, it's a cardboard button that, you, that just folds over on itself and it's just an electrical switch. And so we were able to turn this maker activity that teaches you about the basics of, electri- uh, you know, of a, an electrical switch. Um, and then you started by building and testing the switch, making sure that it works and then, if it works, and you know you're confident that your button will work, and then you can play this game, Molowak.
4: <laughs> wow.
6: So that's that. That was another project that came out of um, the Tech Hive, and I think these kinds of projects would like would not be possible if we didn't have all the R and D time to to develop them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the difference um, lied between the Ingenuity Lab and the Tech Hive. Um, because when we started with the ingenuity lab um, five years ago um, we you know we built upon you know a lot the, the wealth of hands-on activities that um, other museums uh, worked on like the, like the exploratorium and the tinkering studio but we also like um, were able to develop a couple of new ones for ourselves mm-hmm. but then um, if uh, but but the thing is that the Ingenuity Lab is open all the time to the visitors, mm-hmm. and that really takes a hit towards our um, development time. So like we spend most of our effort, you know, training new staff and um, making sure that the public program is actually, um, you know, given, you know, is is, is actually running. Whereas mm-hmm. in the Tech Hive, we're able to, we had the luxury of being close to the visitors and only going to the visitors when our projects were ready. So I think that was the uh, difference—the main difference between the Ingenuity Lab and the Tech Hive—and I think that's where the makerspace makerspace shines. Is that um, the Tech Hive really ran like a makerspace in that I believe a makerspace has a membership and people who come consistently on a consistent basis and are given the time to tinker and come up with new projects. And um, and then and that's exactly what we were able to do with the Tech Hive. We brought in. Uh this year we had 35 teen interns. They worked alongside us museum educators and mm-hmm. we designed and built uh these new and I guess innovative <laughs> um public programs and exhibits for the museum and we were we didn't have to um we didn't have to worry about you know dealing with the public every every weekend um because you know we only dealt with the public like either at the end of the semester or like um in the middle when we were doing testing or, you know, um, it was much more focused on the design of the new visitor experience as opposed to providing visitor experience all the time.
2: Wow. So, um, let me see if I can summarize a little bit. So obviously you guys have done, you know, pretty innovative different kinds of explorations of, of making activities for the last five years. Um, and the seems like some of it is designed for like the fairly quick hit, kind of thing, like the Moloak that would last just mm-hmm. you know a minute, a couple of minutes, to something that's very long in a duration. We have the kids spending an entire semester maybe designing an experience and then unleashing that to the public and then the public getting to experience that. Is that the continuum? Am I missing something?
6: Yeah, yeah I think that's that's pretty much it. Um, when I think about it, I the, the two audiences I, th- I think of are visitors and our volunteers and teens. Uh, so the visitors, they... Um, and I think the, the end goal is to always create um, something for the visitor. So if we're working with the volunteers, or, or in, in this case, our teen interns, um, we work with them through for the entire semester to come up with, pro, like, with public programs, mm-hmm. public programming for the visitors. So it always ends with the visitors, but um, um, I could start with either you know, just the visitors or work with the teens as well.
2: Nice. It sounds like, it sounds really easy <laughs> what you just said. <laughs> so, I, but there's some real challenges you guys have at your institution. So, why don't you like outline that and maybe some of the ways you guys figured it figured out how to overcome those
6: uh, challenges? Um, like, where are you at? <laughs> uh, what do you mean by where am I? At? Where, are, where, where are they? Where's
2: Where's Lawrence Hall physically located?
6: Oh, oh, okay. So, the Lawrence Hall Science is um, up 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 on the hills behind UC Berkeley. Yeah, <laughs> and. Um, it's kind of difficult to get there, especially on uh, f- like in the fall when the football games are ha- like are happening, because it, like the football games literally cut off one of our main roads that takes you to the hall. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's not like it's not some that people will just kind of go hang out if if they don't like really know where it is or are dead set on going um, to the hall. And, uh, and, and in creating our makerspace, uh, that was a real problem that we had. We, um, we we couldn't just rely on drop in teens to come mm-hmm. and just hang out in our makerspace uh, so that's why I, re- I really focused on creating this like really intensive deep dive teen internship program that will continue to draw them to the make you know to the hall every Saturday um so that they, c- uh, they uh, so that they will get out of it and then now that we you know we spent three year the first three years doing that, I think it's definitely allowed us to do to open up more opportunities for less of a intense and for a less intense teen like program Mm. Uh, so that's kind of that's where they're working on right now
2: huh so what would you say to someone who would say that that's not really a a true sort of youth-led maker experience since essentially they're being hired to come to lawrence hall and do these things i assume you incentivize that incentivize this for the kids right
6: Oh, um, we actually didn't pay our teens at all. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> but we have.
2: Um, you paid them um, with that,
6: experience. We paid them with experience exactly, and then <laughs> we even like made sure that they walked away with a portfolio, and um, um and even like and the the great thing was that our, okay, so the first th- the first thing that people told us was that this isn't youth led. The teens were coming up with all of this on their own. And then I and then I, my reply was, of course they're not. They're teens. They don't know any better. Like they don't come in knowing everything that they need to do. They need to learn from someone. That's why they're apprenticing from us, museum educators. Uh, and then this, but the special thing is that the longer that our teens stayed with us, the more responsibilities that they took on. Hmm. And like the only reason I think we were able to do the projects at the scale we were able to do is because we had a cohort, a smaller cohort of like. I don't know, 12 returning teens that were seniors that mm-hmm. knew, just knew what to do. Like we had like all this investment in our teens totally paid off and it allowed us to rely on them and, um, and like delegate things to them so that they could, you know, manage other teens uh, to, you know, to work on these uh, so that we can actually take on bigger projects. So I think that's the... That was the biggest thing that I realized in developing this makerspace for teens is that it really is the focus really is on youth development. You can't expect mm. the youth to develop their own teen programming without actually developing the youth first.
5: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
6: so, <laughs> uh, so that's that was what we focused on for the first three years. It took us three years to kind of figure out like how you know how we worked and all that. But I think we definitely ended up on a really strong. Um, and a really strong platform, and we definitely have a you know a long a cohort of strong returning youth that are helpful to our you know to our new youth, and then we also have a, a, a you know nice cohort of of um, of youth that are you know graduated and are now alum, so that's exciting. <laughs>
1: So AJ shared with us some more details about what the specifics look like of of being involved with maker activities at his location. Let's go back now and hear what Lisa and David had to say about what making looks like at their institutions.
3: Okay, well, our space, Make Shop and the Children's Museum, um, you know, we created it a a while back. Uh, It opened in in 2011, Um, but we actually started prototyping it about a year before. And uh, like we do all things in the museum, we test out ideas. And um, we worked out a lot of the challenges, actually, through prototyping. Uh, We took over a pretty small space um, in an existing exhibit, um, and we just tested ideas. We actually got some interns from the Entertainment Technology Center at Carnegie Mellon University and some help from the University of Pittsburgh Center for Learning and Out-of-School Environments, a research lab. And together we, um, you know we took we did it by medium. We tested out electronics with visitors. We tested out woodworking with visitors. We tested out sewing with visitors. Um, and every day we'd wrestle with our ideas and, and then redesign the space and redesign how we were supporting that, um, experience for visitors. Uh, and we learned a ton. Uh, we messed up a lot. <laughs> we had a few scary moments. Um, but, you know, from that, we were able to very quickly design the space that is Make Shop today that visitors walk into, which is a very um, minimally, architecturally very minimal. Um, and when visitors walk in, they're greeted today by um, an introductory space that really, uh, because we're a children's museum, is a space that's, that's accessible to, I always say, kids that are like know, two months to 102 years, and um, and it introduces some of the processes, like uh, screwing a nut onto a bolt uh, to attach uh, one material to another, or uh, looking at educational resources like Make Magazine or other books, um, or, uh, you know, playing around with magnets would be an introductory activity. Um, uh, then, as you walk through the space, uh, you uh, then can start to engage in some of the other creative processes in more intentional ways. So we have electronic circuit blocks where you can connect um, a power source to an output uh, with electric leads. You can add a switch to that. Um, and you can learn a lot about the, the course of elect- of electricity um, by playing around with these, this assortment of blocks that we have on a table. Um, and if you want to, then you can apply that knowledge or that um, experience to creating something with electricity. Um, you can learn how to sew from using, um, learning the up and down rhythm of uh, needle and thread through um, through pegboard, all the way to using the sewing machine to create an actual garment.
5: Okay, yeah, I mean, on the tales of Maker Faire, uh, we've been doing it for six years, um, We've been hosting it for six years, and uh, that really changed the kind of general, I think, focus of a lot of it, as I was saying earlier, expanding the notion of what science is and entry points into that science Um, experience. So we ended up building out the makerspace, and that's, it's been about three and a half years now, and we've been working through these projects and developing, but institution-wide, it has really shifted a lot, and now we've, uh, but it was about a year and a half ago, uh, the design lab, which is uh, positioned right outside the makerspace in the central pavilion of the museum, uh, deals a lot with Uh, everyday materials and design challenges that kids, you know, or actually just visitors in general can either solve or work through and iterate on to build out an understanding of this, you know, the design process. And then in the Makerspace, we delve a lot more into the idea of materiality and tools and how those tools make our lives better. Okay. In our, uh, in our weekend workshops in the Makerspace, we provide a really, you know, wide breadth of You know possibilities, so we can do. You know, one weekend might be a you know hand sewing workshop, or we call it, you know make a make a friend, where you just sew you know a little guy, a little stuffed animal, and you can kind of give him a name and a character. But then we also you know run the gamut to you know digital um, animation, uh, you know video game design, up into soldering, PCB boards, electronics. So we really try to run the full spectrum of, of engagement over materiality and how that process happens
1: Wow that was awesome yeah we had three incredible guests this episode huh anyway, so can- good yeah but now where does that leave us about making a museums Rick what are you thinking now
2: well I mean we've got three different institutions that are doing three awesome things um, I still don't really know if I have I don't know there's there's still a lot of questions.
0: I think that's totally true I mean I think that we have started this conversation but I think we've nowhere come near to actually having a definitive answer and Mm -hmm. so we I think it would be great if um, folks who are listening to our podcast could weigh in with their opinions on our blog of what are they thinking about in museums or what do they think makerspaces what role do makerspaces play in museums.
1: Up now is our regular News of the Future segment with Elizabeth Merritt, joining us from the Center for the Future of Museums at the American Alliance of Museums. Welcome back, Elizabeth.
4: Hi, Barry. Hi, Rick. Hi, Eve. Hey. Hello.
1: So, Elizabeth, what do you have for us this time?
4: Oh, I have a great one. I, I don't know about you, but I love neologisms, new words for new things and new technologies. So here's one I came across in the past couple of weeks, and the word is instameat, Instameet mm. as in as in a gathering where people are encouraged to come together and take pictures and post to Instagram. In this case, um, it was the Public Art Fund that called together an insta-meet at Metro Tech Commons in Brooklyn. And so they had a new art show of Hank Willis Thomas, and they had a hashtag for it. And they basically were encouraging people to stage the perfect photograph and broadcast it to the world. This is a new kind of social tech phenomenon. I was wondering what you thought of it.
1: We did one of those at H too, where oh, yeah. we reached out to some particular Instagram uh, People who were popular in that space, and then gave them special access to the museum after hours to the collections and I found it really interesting to look from one person 's perspective and see how they viewed the museum. One person loved you know the looking at the exhibits up close someone else liked to look at the interesting locations in the architecture, but the idea of seeing how other people view our spaces I found incredibly informative, so much so that I found something on. That website called If This Then That, mm-hmm. which lets you combine two different social media tools. So I combined um, anybody who's posting something geolocated around the museum. Um, uh, within a 24-hour period, add that to an email, then send it to me once a day. So every day at the end of the day, I get an email of all the photos that were sent from people in the museum up to social media networks. And let me tell you, some of the things people post is really interesting to me. What's really popular? What are things that they're not tagging at the museum but they're doing anyway? Like, you really shouldn't be sitting in that giant shell. Um, or really fun photos that they stage with their, when they're on a date or with their family outside. Uh, and I find seeing how people use the museum as an opportunity to both take take a photo or make an event and something to photograph, um, really informative and fun.
4: Elizabeth, what do you have for us next? I have two words that are a little scary when taken in conjunction, museum and cosplay. This is a story about the Victoria and Albert Museum, which uh, held an exhibit called Pushing Buttons, which was about alt gaming and esports. And at the event, they had cosplayers who were dressed up as League of Legends characters or various Japanese role-playing game uh, players and showing off their outfits. And then they had a lot of game design people uh, and representatives of what they called nerd culture. I thought you'd identify with that, Barry. Oh, yeah. Sounded like an interesting event to me, and I hadn't heard too much about museums really inviting this sort of world of of cosplay and art. Uh, online gaming and and alt gaming into into the walls so I was wondering what else you'd heard of that was like this
0: I think it's kind of interesting because uh I mean yes both geek cultures but vastly vastly different geek cultures and like who would associate being okay and being in the museum um so I like this from just an idea of the museum opening itself up to those who might not otherwise be a part of the museum or who wouldn't identify the museum as a place for them so i think this as sort of a new opportunity for that is um is is interesting and i'm curious to see if other types of museums will pick up on it or not
1: elizabeth what next do you want to share with us
4: Okay, this is under the heading of an app I had to have. <laughs> this is the Hip Hop Project. It's a web app that mashes up the lyrics from your favorite rap song, assuming you have a favorite rap song, with the Mets online collection, okay? So you go on and you pick your favorite, art, favorite artist, uh, assuming that you you know like Notorious Big or Missy Elliott or Nicki Minaj. And then that song blasts out to you. <laughs> But it looks at the keywords, the app looks at the keywords in the the lyrics of the song and then mines the Met's digital collection to show you paintings, sculptures, and objects they think are a good match for the song.
1: And so when you did, did you try it, Elizabeth?
4: Uh, It's scary, but fun.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That reminds me, of, of course, of the Tate Moderns app. Um, uh, the the magic tape ball, which used the idea of a magic eight ball that you would shake your phone, and it would then use other information, not rap lyrics, but the time of day, where you were in the world, if it was close to a meal time and then show you something related from their exhibit. And so this idea of whimsically sharing uh, exhibit content, not because you search for it, not because you browse for it, but you want to experience it in an unexpected, fun, and goofy way, Uh, it sounds like it's a way that, that... it's people are exploring that uh through apps and, and and uh can be quite fun and interesting
0: maybe i'm the curmudgeon today i um i think <laughs> the idea is interesting but i think the i don't know I, I i guess i'm struggling with what's the what's the throughput on that like if i'm hearing the song and i'm seeing these like paintings that are associated with these different words like um what is the experience I'm actually getting out of that rather, other than just being exposed to a bunch of different art? And, and maybe that's the purpose, and that's great. But I think is if I'm thinking about like trying to get for deeper types of engagement or trying to like make meaningful connections, I, I don't know, I, I'm struggling a little bit to see that with this particular app.
1: If you'd like to learn about more news of the future, you can check out our show notes, which will not only share more about how you can learn more about these particular stories, but how you can also get your own weekly update from Elizabeth. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us again.
4: Thank
2: you, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Object Oriented. Check out our blog at www.objectoriented.info for podcast links, episode-related information and discussion, and past episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at O-Oriented, or you can follow us individually at Gauss Eve, Mushmi, and Rick the Ranger. We have our own blogs at digitalfieldnotes.com, mooshme.org, and rangerrick.com. If you have ideas for future episodes, we'd really love to hear them. Thanks for listening.
3: What does digital learning look like in a collections-based
0: museum? Find out now on Object Oriented, the podcast.